you all get a, a different sort of update in this service. Uh, it's only fitting to make sure that you got a little bit more of the story as we prayed together last week. Uh, just prior to the message, we were praying uh, in the previous two services that a young man who's uh, closely connected to a family in our church, Caden, uh, would be able to get out of Israel. Uh, then in this service, we got word that he had booked a flight, and then our prayer was that he would make that flight, that everything would fall into place. I just wanted to share with you all, uh, thank you very much for your prayers uh, and believing in the power of prayer, because Caden did, in fact, make that flight uh, and did get out of Israel uh, within just hours of us praying last week. So thank you for that. <clears throat> I would ask that you continue to remember the uh, friends of our church, the family that I mentioned to you last week. I won't, won't share too many details in this setting, but um, that family that lives and works there, they have continued to see the escalations this past week and have found themselves in some scary situations, their fa family in scary situations. So continue to remember that family. And then just continue to pray for uh, the people of Israel uh, as a whole. Continue to pray for uh, those in Palestine, again, who just want nothing to do with war um, and, and pray that God's mighty hand would prevail over evil. Amen. So continue to lift all of those items up in prayer today for our time together. We are drawing near the close of this story, this really beautiful narrative that Jesus shared with a group of, of sinners and self-righteous, a story that at its core is about the heart of the Father, both within the story and a picture to us of the heart of God, right? And so last week we wrapped up and we saw the Father's heart demonstrated toward the Son who returns, the conclusion of it all being that when the Son came home, they threw this huge party, right? You remember that's how it wrapped up. And I think it's worth us pausing to note that we as the church should see that as an example of how we should view those who are far from God and then he draws them to himself. Those who were once lost and are now found. Those who were dead and now made alive. We the church need to do a better job of throwing parties. Amen? Amen. We need to be a people that don't just patty cake when someone comes to Jesus, but instead when they stand in those baptismal waters and, and are taken down into the water as a symbol of death with Christ and risen again in newness of life, that we get excited, that we shout, that we holler, that we clap, and that we celebrate the fact that God is still in the business of drawing the lost ones home and changing lives. Amen? Amen. Y'all are my favorite again this week. You're with it. You're awake, you're ready to go, but there's more to the story. There's more to this story because there's another brother. It wasn't just about this young man who comes home and is repentant and, and says, let me just serve you. There was an older brother who the whole time stayed close to the house, right? Who the whole time never strayed. 
The entire time that this knucklehead of a brother of his, this hooligan, runs off and wastes all of the father's money and engages in all kinds of chicanery and shenanigans and tomfoolery. And now all of a sudden he comes home and a party is thrown. The whole village is invited. Woohoo! The brother is home. So glad he's back. Rolling out the red carpet for this joker. And the older brother is ticked. Can I get an amen? None of y'all have any family dynamics like that? Was that too close? Let's leave that one alone. That's for private counseling sessions, not right now. The older brother is upset. And for some of us, this is kind of the moment we've been waiting on. Why? Because there are many of us who relate right now where we are in life very much to that younger brother. We feel this deep connection, this this emotional uh, draw to this younger brother. We're moved to the point of tears because we think about him and we think about ourselves. and, And yes, that was me. I was aimless and I was broken and I was lost and I was far from God. And then the father welcomed me home as his child. And he loved me, right? Some of us really, really find that that part of the story resonates. But there are others of us, if we're honest, and don't raise your hand, please, that we read this parable and even knowing what we know, we find ourselves going, that's kind of messed up, right? Again, you don't have to raise your hand. You know who you are. We read this and we're like, this just, this does not make sense. We find ourselves in a moment going, I I don't get it. And the truth is, those of us who find ourselves at times relating more to the older brother, that's the reason Jesus tells the story. It was for the Pharisee. It was for the older brothers listening that day. It's for the older brothers listening today. Tim Keller in that book I mentioned a few weeks ago, Prodigal God, says this, the first time I heard the parable, I imagined Jesus' original listeners, eyes welling with tears as they heard how God will always love and welcome them no matter what they've done. But he goes on to say this, we sentimentalize this parable if we do that, if we stop there, because the targets of this story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires, who do what they're supposed to do, who stay close to the house. And we know that this is the target of the parable Jesus shares because think about it, in the previous two parables, we get to see no reaction or response, right? The one before this is the parable of a lost coin. The one before that is the parable of one lost sheep. We don't get to hear how the other coins felt. We, we don't get to, to read a narrative about how the other sheep felt 
about the shepherd going after this one sheep. But in this one, we get to witness the older brother's response. And so let's do just that today, picking up in Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Luke 15, 25. We read this. Now the father's older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Pause. Because, as I said a moment ago, we need to do better about celebrating the lost one returning. Amen? Amen. But as we read this, the reason for the pause is this. This is some kind of party. Y'all with me? I'm not sure that you are. Because you know that this is a rocking party when you can hear the dancing. (laughs) You didn't see it, did you? (laughs) What this tells me is there are definitely, Benjamin, some folks from Arcadia at this party. (laughs) Right? And listen, I don't need your email saying that's offensive to people from Arcadia. Bro, I'm from Hendersonville, North Carolina. I know a redneck when I see one. <laughs> this is a party. He hears the music and dancing. And he calls to one of the servants and asks what this all means. And the servant says to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The one who is dead is now alive. But the older brother was angry and refused to go into the party. His father came out and said, please come and join us. Please be a part of this. But he answered his father and listened to this saying, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Can you imagine how this older brother must have felt? Some of you are struggling with this right now in your life, in your homes, in situations that you have. Not just with actual brothers and sisters, but with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Imagine not only how the older son must have felt, imagine how the Pharisees must have felt. Let's again consider the audience, right? The Pharisees, we saw this last week, I teased it a little bit. The Pharisees know how this story is supposed to go. The the Pharisees are fully aware that the rollout of this should have been the return of this younger brother and in accordance with the law, Deuteronomy chapter 21, because he has brought shame on his household and his village, he is to be brought to the center of town and stoned by everyone there. And so as this older brother says, I'm angry. I'm not coming to your stupid party. The Pharisees are going, you're darn straight. 
So today we're going to consider just that, the elder brother's response to this homecoming, the weight that he carried. Today we see the older brother as a picture. We've seen the heart of the father demonstrated. We've seen the prodigal as a picture. Today we see the older brother as a picture. And first of all, where we're going to focus most of our time and attention today is we see that the older brother is a picture of a warped perspective. A warped perspective. The older brother sees things just a little bit off. Right? As Jesus tells his parable, he's not demonizing the older brother. And so in doing so, he's not demonizing the Pharisees. He's trying to to show them, you, you see it just a little off. Your perspective is a little warped. It's not that you're completely wrong, but you're not right. You're not seeing this the way you ought to see it. And that's where we're going to get to next week a little bit. But it's a warped perspective, seeing things just slightly askew. And the first person that this older brother has a warped perspective concerning is himself. He has a warped perspective of self. How many of you remember a few years ago when uh, this app came out? It was called, you may not remember the name of it, but you'll remember how it worked. It was called Face App. And the whole thing was like you could click certain filters and it would, ch- you could load your photo and it would change things about the photo. It would, it would make you look more Hollywood or it would make you look a little older or it would make you look a y- little younger. And, and, and some of you like wanted to see what you would look like because of the opposite sex. And, uh, but you know, it just, it's changed stuff, right? Now, it's, it's not necessarily that the app itself is as popular anymore, but the idea of the filters is popular. And I know that to be true because I've seen people on Instagram and Facebook and then I've seen them in person. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I pulled this up. Uh, the, the, the app itself does still exist. And so I pulled it up. And uh, here is a picture of me right here as though you needed a larger version of all that. But... <laughs> Here it is. There's a picture of me. Um, and uh, it just snapped it. Just a little selfie. If you need all the guys in the room, uh, if you have a phone, just pull your phone out like this. I just want to do a quick tutorial for you guys. Pull your phone out. Pull your phone out. If you want to know how to take a selfie, uh, what I want you to do, just take it out. Hold it about arm's length like this. Okay, you guys got it? Now look at the phone. Now put it back in your pocket and stop it. Quit taking selfies of yourself. <laughs> You're a grown man. (laughs) That's not in the Bible. It's just my personal opinion. (laughs) I will get in trouble for that one, I'm sure. So there's a picture of me. And so I apply, I wanted to see, all right, what does the Hollywood filter look like? So this is me, and this is me with the Hollywood filter, right? And see, I heard it's deep that some of y'all laugh so readily at that. Like, that's such a big difference. No, I'm kidding. That's Brad Pitt. I don't know how he made it into two messages. I didn't do that on purpose for this series. It just worked out that way. Here's me, and this is me with the Hollywood filter, okay? Now, here's the thing. At first glance, if I look at this image, if you look at this image, you're like, yeah, that's Nate. But it's not. It's not Nate. 
And let me tell you how I know. Because when I look at that picture, I can tell you, first of all, I'm going to need to be able to somehow magically start regrowing hair that's never coming back. I'm okay with that. I'm secure in my manhood. It's not returning. Number two, I'm also not only going to be able to need to regrow hair there, but I'm going to need to somehow figure out how to grow stubble that doesn't look like a 12-year-old. Because that's what I got. All right? But number three, and perhaps most revealing, is that if I look at these two pictures, what I see is in order for this to be the real me, I'm going to need to make sure that every morning and traveling with me every day, I have a team of professional airbrush makeup artists. Because in this picture, the wrinkles here and here have somehow disappeared. The blemishes here have somehow gone away. The imperfections are no longer there. Because while this is me, it's a warped version of me. How often is that exactly how we live our lives? We have a view of self with far less blemishes and imperfections. We have a view of self that has a few of the things that others can readily see. They're gone. It's a warped image of who we are. And that's exactly how this older son sees himself in this moment. You know how I know? Because if you look at verse 29, you see in his response, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. All these years, Father, I have never transgressed, some translations say. I have never refused you. I have never disobeyed you. Say it with me. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I have never disobeyed you. Jesus knows his audience, and so he skillfully utilizes exaggeration, hyperbole, to make sure it hits the heart of those listening. Because here's the truth of the matter. To say, I never sinned against you, I never transgressed against you, is to make a claim that only one son in all of history could ever make. And he was the one telling the story, and we're not him. So he says, I never sinned against you. Jesus knew that his audience, the target of this part of his story, the Pharisees, these were people, Luke 18 describes this way. Luke 18 verse 9, just a few chapters later. They're described as people who trusted themselves that they were righteous. His audience was a group of people who trusted in their own ability, who trusted in their own accomplishments, who trusted in their own doing and working and performing. The struggle for so many of us, as was the struggle for the older brother, is we often mistake trusting our works and our self-righteousness. God, I worked at the soup kitchen every month. God, God, you saw me. I gave faith to that church, to that charity. 
I made sure that the homeless had care packages. I bit my tongue when I really wanted to give her what for. All of these things that I've done, I always do the right thing. Warped perspective of self. And the thing is, you'll notice this oftentimes in those who are walking with Jesus, those who are newer to a relationship with Christ, and those who have been at it a while, they both believe in the awesome grace of God. Amen? But this has been my experiences. Not every time, but many times. You go talk to someone who is brand new to Jesus, and you have a, you remember what that's like, right? You start having a conversation with them, and you start saying, man, this is just amazing. Like, what's changed in your life? They're like, it's just Jesus. It's just grace. They're like, yeah, but you stop. You stopped drinking, you stopped partying, you, and you started doing this, and you started doing that. And what, what's happened? It's just Jesus. It's just grace. That's their answer. You go to someone who's been doing it a while. It's not that they deny the grace of God, but often you'll say, hey, this is really great. What's going on in your life? Tell me about it. And they're like, it's just the grace of God, and it's grace plus. It's, it's Jesus, and I've done this. As though somehow you're good enough. As though somehow you have the discipline. The discipline itself is the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The, the fact that you can even stop doing a thing is not because you're that strong. It's because he's that great. And yet that's what happens. That warped view of self where pride and arrogance comes in. And we begin to elevate ourselves and elevate our own abilities. It's not that we shouldn't do those things. It's that we can't trust in those things. And the problem is anytime we begin to elevate ourselves, right? Anytime you elevate self by default, you're going to be looking down on someone else. And that's what happened here. He had a warped perspective of self, but he also had a warped perspective of others. Verse 30. Part of his response to the father was, Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And then he says this, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, like Jesus does not shy away from shock factor when he's trying to tell a story. Y'all with me? Like, can you imagine being in the crowd and you're kind of nodding off and getting tired like y'all do on Sundays when I preach? And then all of a sudden, he says, this, this son of yours who has devoured your property with whores. Like, even that got a few heads up. You're like, you were checking your Facebook notification. He say whores? What? Huh? Jesus is telling this story and he says, the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Notice how he introduces this part of his argument with the father. But when what? This son of yours. Who is this young man to the one who came home? What's the relationship? It's his brother. And yet, he does not say, my brother. He takes it a step further and says, this son of yours. It's like around our house. We got this cute little pup, cute little doggy, Augie the doggy. He's a cool dog. But 
When that dog starts running around in the living room and going, (laughs) right? Doing the sniff. Y'all know what the sniff is. Some things are about to go down. When he starts sniffing around like that, you know what happens? I go to the closet. I grab the leash. I take it. No, I do not. Let me tell you what happens. When that dog starts sniffing around, I say, Karis, Canaan, the bubbles around, Benjamin, this dog of yours needs to go outside, right? Sometimes my mama Sita is sweet. She's just got that heart of compassion. She'll go, baby, I've got it. I'm like, no, no, no. Steer dog. On the rare occasion, he has a little accident. I don't go pick that up. Uh-uh. I say, this dog of yours just made a mess out of my front room. And somebody needs to clean it up in the name of Jesus. It's not going to be me. Right? Why don't I do that? I'm trying to make a disconnect. I'm trying to make it clear that that dog's not mine. There's no relationship here. That's what the older brother was doing here. That's not my brother. That's your son. Why? Because when we separate ourselves relationally, when we disassociate with a person, it makes it much easier to place labels on them and cast judgment and categorize them and set them off when they're no longer our brother. That's why Jesus presents the story in this fashion. Because when we choose not to sympathize, not to show compassion. It allows us to dismiss them, not as a brother and sister in Christ, but, you know, that's so-and-so that happens to go to the same church. I'll tell you, for me, it makes it easier for those of us who, who lead in churches and ministries to say, well, that pastor, that pastor over there, instead of my brother. That's what happened, this warped perspective of others. And again, Jesus highlights this because he knows what's in the hearts of his listeners. Those who have a mindset like he shares in that same parable in Luke chapter 18 that have this mindset of, dear God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Or in Luke chapter 7 where a woman anoints Jesus' feet and in that situation, Pharisees are there that they say, that woman has wasted this. It's that disconnect. And it presents for us the great temptation that we face in the church today. And that great temptation is this. It's not, I'm the greatest. It's, I'm better than you. Because, right, it's just a warped perspective. It's not altogether wrong. Because we all know who the greatest is, right? Jesus. It's not about, I'm the greatest. The warped perspective is, I'm better than you. And that's what the elder brother had fallen prey to. Just a smidge of wisdom for all of us. I'm preaching to myself this morning. Promise you I'm going to go home and listen and make sure that I apply some of this as well. No matter who you measure against, their wrong doesn't automatically make you right. Because ultimately, we're all to be measured against one standard. And that is God who became flesh lived a perfect life, 
and died on a cross, arms outstretched for every single one of us. That's the measure. He had a warped perspective of self, a warped perspective of others, which in turn led to a warped perspective of the Father. In many, maybe even most translations, you'll notice something that happens as he starts this conversation with the Father. He was angry. He refused to go in. Verse 28 says, his father came out and entreats him, please come in. Please be a part of the party. But he answered his father and he said, look. Now everybody make sure you get that in your heart and in your mind. That's how it started. Look. Right? Don't you love it when your kids talk to you that way? Let me just throw this out for you. We won't dive into it today. But that word in the Greek for look, orao, is the same word that is recorded the night that the angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ. And in that particular instance, orao is translated behold. It literally means pay attention, look at me, hear what I have to say next. That's how the son starts this conversation with the father. Look, you're not going to disrespect me like this. Let this fool come back into our house. Listen to me, old man. How dare you? Now, let me tell you how that goes in our house. It does not happen often. I've said this every service. I want it to be heard very well. I often tell stories about my amazing children. And then you all go talk to them about those stories afterwards. (laughs) So I want it clear. This doesn't happen often. My kids aren't angels, but I've got good kids. And I thank God for that gift every single day. But sometimes they'll get out of line. My oldest is more familiar with this first phrase. The other two are more familiar with the second phrase. You get a little warped on your perspective of mom and dad in our house. You'll hear one of two phrases come out of my mouth. You start in with me or even worse, you start in with Mama Sita. I will stand in between you and Mama Sita and make sure you hear these words. You start off and you start pushing back. I will step right there and I'll look you in the eyes and I'll say, you need to stand down, private. Because I want you to remember who you are. More recently, I've begun to use the phrase, you need to reel it in. Just a little reminder, lovingly. But that's how this brother starts this conversation. Look, listen to me. He doesn't even address the father as one should address a father. who's loving and kind. But then he says this, look, you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I never disobeyed you. I've always served you. And you never, there's that word again, be very careful with that, gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. Fake news. Like, what are you talking about? This isn't even true. Well, Nate, we don't know what the interaction was. You know, there's lots of backstory. No, we literally know exactly what the interaction was because Jesus is God and he got the story right. And he said in verse 12, this right here. And the younger of them, this is the younger brother again, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. You're not dying fast enough. Hurry up, give me my inheritance. So the father divided his Property In the Greek, that word is diareo. Divided is diareo. And it means exactly that, to divide into parts, to apportion and to distribute. 
So I know you're thinking, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's exactly what happened. The younger son comes, says, give me what's mine. And the father said, great, I will divide it. I will I'll divide it into parts and I'll distribute it to you. The only catch is, some of you already read ahead, which I love. There's more to verse 12. It says that the father, he divided into parts. Check this out. His property between, uh-oh. You never gave me a young goat. No. It was divided between both brothers when the younger brother asked. So not only was he given something, but we know that they would have understood culturally that it's very likely that he was given twice what the younger brother was given. You never gave me even a goat. But isn't that what so often happens? We begin to exaggerate. We get a warped perspective of what God has done in our lives. God, you've never done. You never done. I never asked for. You ne- Whoa, hold on a second. Quit stomping your feet and declaring it's unfair just because you're so hyper-focused on what somebody else got that you've forgotten what he did for you. So it was a warped perspective of self, of others, And the father, because he didn't see himself correctly, because he didn't see others correctly, he couldn't see the father correctly. And the result of that, that not only is he a picture of a warped perspective, he's a picture of a weary soul. Verse 29. Look. These many years I have served you. Catch it. Jesus gives us a picture of the older brother who's been keeping a record. An older brother who's been cataloging, calculating every rule he obeyed, every good thing he did, every deed that was done as he stayed close to the house. Look, these many years, I've served you. I've done exactly what you asked. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I've served you. I did this. I did this. I did this. I never refused you or disobeyed you. I did it just as you asked. Who talks like that? Someone who's tired. You know who talks like that? Is someone who has fallen into the trap of believing that somehow a relationship with a father is about how well you perform. That it's about somehow logging enough good deeds. That it's about somehow doing all the right things, all the right ways these many years. And some of you here today, some of you joining us online, these many years, you just like the older brother have done exactly what you were supposed to in exactly the manner that you were supposed to. 
and you are physically and emotionally spent, exhausted, frustrated. Bitterness and resentment have settled in. This young man's soul had become so drained, so weary that he was completely missing it. I can recall years ago when my wife and I reached the point in our marriage where we said, we want to start a family. Do y'all remember that? that? That point that you came to? We said, we want to start a family. Let's start having some kids. And so we prayed about it. We thought about it. We are like, this is going to be great. This will be, be amazing. It wasn't really amazing. Because our story wasn't like the ones that you hear sometimes of people who are like, let's have kids. And then he sneezes and then whoop, she's pregnant. Like it didn't work that way for us. And so an initial doctor's appointment turned into many doctor's appointments and doctor's appointments turned into various specialists and and months turned into years and it was exhausting. And all along the way, my beautiful mamacita was so filled with grace because at the same time we were starting this journey, I was also a worship pastor in that season of my life. And so every week, I, I, it, was, it was my responsibility to, to bring together this amazing group of worshiper, worshipers, this huge choir and worship leaders and musicians. And, and we would lead people into the presence of the Lord corporately and sing about the goodness of God and his awesomeness. That's, that's what we did. And so there, there came over the period of some time, those young couples who were newlyweds that would come in and share at choir rehearsal or, or at small group or in some context, hey, we're so excited. We just found out we're pregnant. And Mama Sita would wrap her arms around them and congratulate them and cheer with them and pray with them and say, if there's anything you need, we're here. And then there would be those young couples that would come in and say, we're pregnant. We weren't even trying. And Mama Sita would wrap her arms around them and hug them and pray with them and cheer with them and smile with them. And then there were those couples that would come in and say, we're we're pregnant. We don't even know how it happened. And Mama Sita would love on them, hug on them, pray with them, celebrate with them. But over the years, after every single one of those announcements, after praying on them, loving on them, hugging on them, we would go home. And what happened behind that closed door was very different in the sense that it broke my wife. And every single time she would say, I'm so glad that God's doing this in their life, but I'm hurting. And in tears, I would wrap my arms around her and I would say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. God's got this. And on this side of the story, it's really easy, right? Because I got three of them. But on that side of the story, it was everybody saying it's never going to happen. While everybody else was seeing it happen. And I would just wrap my arms around her and I'd be a good, good Christian. It's going to be okay. God's got this. God's got us. And that was until that one night that we went to a choir rehearsal and uh, some close friends of ours came in and they said, we're pregnant 
again. And she loved him. And you hugged him. And you celebrated with him. And then we went home. And you cried. And I was done. And I walked in that room. And I hugged my wife. And then I went straight to the bedroom closet. And being the good worship leader, pastor that I was, I put my right hand through the drywall in that closet four or five times. And I screamed. And I hollered. And I may have said some unsanctified rated R words in that closet. And you know what I followed it with? God, do you even care? I've done all this for you. I did everything you asked me to. I gave away my dreams for the sake of your gospel. I set aside things that I wanted to do and things I wanted to chase. I did everything right, God. And you're not holding up on your end of the deal. Forgetting the whole time. That he never dropped his end of the deal. Because his end of the deal was always. I will never leave you or forsake you. See, I had gotten confused, filled with bitterness and resentment. You know why? Because somewhere along the way, I thought that God owed me because I had performed well. And I still slip. I still default to the older brother sometimes. I still get upset. When new Christians experience a healing from the Lord and I'm still struggling with a disease that I've had for years. I still fall into that trap. I'm not saying I'm completely over it, but I'm saying this. I at least understand now that the invitation, the invitation, while beautiful to the younger brother, was always welcome home Now come to the party. But there was another invitation that we often miss in this. And it was to the older brother. And it was, you are home. Throw the party with me. You've always been home. But the problem is, the older brother and so many of us, what we get stuck in is thinking it was about being close to the house. Keeping the rules doing the right things. The problem is, it's never been about our proximity to the house. It's always been about our proximity to his heart. And it's there that we realize that no amount of doing or striving is ever going to impress him. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not to say that works are a part of our life in Christ, but our works flow out of the relationship we have with him. They are the byproduct. As James says, faith without works is dead. But what that means is we don't work to get faith. We work because we have faith. Because we have him. So today the invitation to you is the same. Don't be like me. Don't be like the older brother. Don't find that your heart is further away 
from the heart of the Father than the one who came crawling home. Accept his invitation, the realization that you've always been home. Start throwing some parties with him. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time together. Help us to see that while this parable is about the reckless redeemed, it's even more about the religious reminded of your goodness, of your grace. Let us ask forgiveness for the times we've thought ourselves better than another. Lord, move some of us to the place of confessing that we're tired of performing. That our souls are worn out and that we don't want to feel jealousy and anger and bitterness anymore. Though we have been near you, let us be drawn near to your heart today. And at that we say, amen.